Welcome. You're listening to Value Add with Lars Coburn, bringing conversations and reflections that add value to your life. Well, it's another Friday afternoon. It's actually been sunny and not too cloudy here in Eugene on this week of uh, December 18th. And uh, I'm sitting beside my fire trying to warm up after a long walk and thinking about um, life, really. One of the things that keeps coming up uh, this week has been different podcasts that I've been listening to in response to some questions about faith and about reason and about the Bible and how it all comes together, about uh, religious experience, and I'm getting ready to open up Richard Beck's book, The Authenticity of Faith, and explore a little bit of it. I really like his kind of, um, at least on the cover, kind of this idea of the illusions of religious experience, and I, I think that's been something that's been on my mind uh, a lot this week as I've been in conversation with different family members about why I believe, why what they believe, uh, what we used to believe, what we now believe new. And I really thought about 2020, how it's really been a year where we've unraveled a lot of things that we believed about the world and about how we could make our lives work, about what was important. And we've had to let go of a lot of things um, from eating out regularly, depending on where you live, um, to different things about uh, our health and how to be healthy, uh, what matters in hygiene and hygiene practices. Um, And then even to religious things. So about, well, what does it mean to be a Christian? Does that go away because I can't go to church anymore? Um, or am I able to still do church, uh, online or on live streams or should our commitment to being a Christian mean that we have to defy certain guidelines or restrictions or even mandates or government, um, government issued kind of decrees, if you will. So I, I was really surprised, I guess, at myself for writing some some things. Uh, one of the things that kind of came unraveled was a discussion I had with somebody the other day, and I realized, man, I had forgotten uh, what my atonement theory was. Like, what do I need uh, Jesus, what does Jesus's death on the cross really mean to me? Because the cross is at the center of my life, and yet um, a lot of times we set certain things aside, and as I've been thinking about uh, deconstruction it's called um i was reminded man i've done some work of reconstructing a view of what jesus on the cross means and so i was reading my paper on that Uh, maybe i'll i'll share a little bit about uh, atonement theories at some point but uh but today's podcast kind of centers on the the bible and biblical interpretation and so i wanted to uh, revisit a book review that i did um on uh, for a class uh, by a book uh, called Seized by Truth um, by Joel Green. And Joel Green at the time that I was going to seminary at Fuller Seminary was the the dean of students or the academic dean. I think he was the academic dean. Um, so he was kind of the, the, the academic dean of the School of Theology at the time. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to take a class by Dr. Green. Um, he was having some health issues while I was there and actually stepped out and they had a, a, 
another dean come in or a temporary dean and then eventually they did replace him with, with someone else but uh, I believe he still may teach at Fuller some I'm not 100% sure where he's at now but his book came out in 2007 actually when I think he wasn't at Fuller um, this was pre his time coming to Fuller but it's uh, it's rooted in his I believe Wesleyan heritage um, but then kind of speaks to uh, a larger swath of what I would call uh, not incredibly evangelical, but, but still within that evangelical heritage of Christianity. So uh, we could think of the Methodist churches, we could think of um, kind of some of the mainline denominations falling within this, but also um, you, would, you would definitely speak to churches like my heritage, the, the Churches of Christ, Christian Church, um, and uh, many non-denominational church movements would fall in this idea that we read by read the Bible as scripture, as Christian scripture, and we believe that it conveys truth. And so, what I was really struck by in this book um, is how he unearths and kind of helps us think about what does it mean to say that we read the Bible as scripture, as a theological statement as something that we begin with before we dissect scripture with um, with different methods. And uh, most of the time, interpretation methods uh, kind of boil down to a very simple view of the scientific method, where we test things out and we finally prove whether something is right or we disprove it, and then we go in search of a new theory to test and approve. And so Green kind of makes this case that, that scripture has an aim. Um, that we need to consider its aim before we dissect it with things like where it was in history, who was writing it, what kind of genre, what kind of form is the literature. So these are all really important things to do to Scripture. Who's the author? Who's the intended uh, audience? What was their worldview and what was going on with them and why was this written? But before we... Um, dissect it too closely, I think we need to also take into consideration that the Bible as a whole, as a, as a piece of work, of, of art, um, has something important, um, has an aim with it. And so uh, basically, I summed up Green's central point, and maybe this isn't what Green would say was his central point, but it's what I took away, is that we come to the Bible not so much to retrieve facts or to gain information, but to be formed. And so uh, throughout the book, he's helping us see uh, that we are part of the process. We're not an outside entity objectively pulling out like this is the truth, the big T truth, right? But in fact, the big T truth is we are being changed by it. Scripture is far more concerned, Green will say, with shaping our imaginations, our patterns of thinkings, which inevitably finds expression in transformed commitments and practices. And so this comes out of the idea that the Bible is not a, a science textbook or, or simply a historical uh, book that records factual history, but it actually has an aim to change us where we are, even though we are not where it was when it was written or where it was when the original audience was reading it. And so um, we really need to realize that it's helping shape our identity 
And I thought that was a really good way of kind of pressing against the interpretive tools and methods that I got very familiar with and really I respect them um, a lot. I mean, they're, they're helpful things as we kind of deal with some of the problems in the text, if you will, or the things that disturb us in the text. But really, we need to press against this idea of just that the Bible can be dissected by realizing that there's a theological statement of it being scripture. And so the practices, interpretations that have arisen since the late like 1700s especially, aren't cast aside, but Green says they're dethroned. And I think he says this to signify the place that the interpretive methods have in reading scripture. That all the methods are helpful for seeing the text clearly, but for us as Christians who read it as scripture, we need to kind of go further than just the methods. And, um, and so I think this is helpful in a time where we're reacting. Uh, if you will, postmodern or late modern thinking is reacting to the big T truth of modernism, which was we can prove things factually and objectively by doing these experiments and doing observations. And uh, we can use our human reasoning to really boil down what is actually true about the world and about um, humans and about the, the world we, that we live in. And I think a lot of times uh, what has happened is modernism has given us both fundamentalism in Christianity where we believe uh, so hardcore certain aspects and we're not open to anything else. And so we're, we say there's these fundamental things and we hold to them so like with a death grip. And then modernism or uh, the scientific method, if you will, that's that's too general of a way of describing modernism, but I, that's that's the thing that stands out to me. Has also given us atheism, to to an extent where before there was just a plurality of views. So you'd say paganism or the 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 pantheon of Greek gods. It wasn't that you didn't believe that no gods existed. You just didn't believe that their god was better than your god. Or Christianity comes in and says, no, there's not these other gods. There's one god who created everything. And now modernism has given light to this whole new view that maybe humans are the highest, you know, like it has taken humans and said, we are not just um, saying that there's one emperor who's a goddess or a pharaoh who is also a god but you have humanity as its whole is the highest form of intelligence and there is no great god or designer or something behind these things and i think it's funny that both groups the groups that are fundamentalist christians who hold on to these ways of reading the text these ways of uh, orienting themselves in this world that they can say there is absolute truth, and that is God. God is absolute truth. They hold on to it with a death grip. They are a product of the same philosophy, really, in my view, as the people who are atheists. And so even now, postmodernism has now attacked both camps to an extent where an atheist combating a, a fundamentalist Christian is kind of boring to the postmodern because they are not really that interested in a big T objective truth. So what do we do then in this kind of soup that we now live in where I am confronted with all these methods that kind of disprove faith, but then I, I need to reclaim an understanding that, there, that I do have and I do hold 
to a Christian faith, a theological faith? What do I do in this postmodern era now where uh, it's not as easy to, uh, there's skepticism and real uh, concern over whether people can objectively discover what truth is? Um, I think it's interesting that Green discusses different uh, different things about um, how reading Scripture needs to be located in communities, faith communities. And so he says that we shouldn't read Scripture n- like neutrally, actually. It's never neutral. It's never objective, if you will. We always bring our own interests and commitments to the text. And so we need to learn how... Uh, we do that, how we do that with the New Testament authors. In fact, the, the Bible itself doesn't assume that they're coming to it objectively. They are reading it together in community with each other. And so this theological stance keeps us, I think, from the pitfalls of misusing a text because it's plucked out of its context of the creation, fall, redemption, and recreation of the whole kind of overarching story of, of Scripture. And so, um, if you will, if we're able to read with a plethora of possible readings, kind of like how we might read the parables of Jesus and say there's not one way to realize what the seed means in the story of the sower, and there's not one sower. It might be we are the sowers. Sometimes we can read that parable as we're sowing seed, and other times we read the parable as God is the sower. Um, But it's problematic to say that there's one particular reading. And to read scripture as this is to leave open at every turn the possibility that our interpretive traditions are erroneous and in need of reformation. And so it's one of the harder concepts, but I think it's really central to to this idea um, is to read the scripture uh, spirit imbued. Okay, so it's it's weird, but it's basically saying that um, we need to let God do the work of transformation in our lives first. And that may be a journey where we hold to certain truths right now and and God reveals new truths or new ways or reforms those truths in our life later on. And so um, I think that's a really difficult thing for most of us because we believe that when you read the Bible, you get truth revealed to you. And to read the Bible as truth means that there's one way of reading it, that God intended something from either the beginning or now that we understand things through Jesus, we can understand the Old Testament truly. Um, And the Jews, they don't get it because they don't have Jesus, so they don't understand truth. And I think that's dismissive and not helpful because it's in fact wrong to say that the Jews don't have truth. They have truth of God in the Old Testament, and they read the truth of God today, even through their lenses. And so we need to be comfortable with the fact that there are other readings and that my reading might be erroneous and I may need to be reformed. And to come to the Bible and say that that is true, that we are being reformed and transformed by the text, does not mean that it doesn't contain truth. Um, it conveys truth in in just a different way. Um, uh, I think it's interesting that he kind of goes into this a little bit and, and talks about close readings of the text um, in context. He, he kind of comes back to an idea of like creating a strategy, if you will, for reading the text. Um, he kind of talks about three categories, 
behind the text, the in the text, and the in front of the text. And I think it's important that we um, we don't get too fixated on one of them, um, but that we we don't get too fixated on one particular method of reading scripture, but that we take them together in conversation with each other. Um, and so I like this as a critique to the silver bullet idea of interpretation, that, that we need um, to do the hard work of actually journeying through the biblical interpretation methods out there and do this in community with other scholars, with people who are really smart, um, and with people who maybe don't believe what, the way we believe. I, I was just talking um, the other day with my dad, and I realized that many ways, if you take creation, the creation account, and you say um, that this Jewish person, and a lot of people would say that the Tanakh or the, the Jewish scriptures came together as early, uh, the earliest would be like 800 BC, which is much later than most of the texts uh, talk about some of the history. So that would be like mid or late uh, of the kings. That would be right as Israel is getting ready to be deported. And so you, you realize that most of the writings that we have come together in the form of the Jewish Old Testament that we have much, much later than we would uh, really have imagined, at, at least I would have. And so uh, if scholars are right with this uh, coming together of the Jewish literature, it would make sense that most of the Bible, even the, the creation accounts, are being written down. Maybe they were, had oral histories that were earlier than that, but they were being written down and canonized as scripture um, in the time of the Babylonian exile. And so if you think about it, this Jew is sitting with his Babylonian neighbor, and this is the way that Tim Mackey from the Bible Project kind of talks about it, he, it would make sense that this is how the Babylonian guy, the neighbor of this Jew, is thinking about creation. There's chaos, and there's all this stuff going on, and there's warring of the gods, and they create humans to be slaves um, to serve them. And the Jew turns to his Babylonian neighbor and says, you know this story of creation here, I'll tell it to you. But let me tell it to you with a little bit of a different nuance, with tell you a little bit about who God is. So he doesn't change the story that much. He takes what's familiar to his Babylonian neighbor and then speaks into it these truths about God that the Jew understands in a, in a new way. And so uh, if you were to take this in a modern context uh, today, you might say, as I'm sitting down with my friend who believes in evolution— uh, because of biology, because of uh, the connections between species and all the things that we know about science and what science has told us. So we sit down together and we say, this is how our world conceives of how the beginning of time began. There was some spark, some bang, and it was big enough that it caused molecules to begin vibrating. And then da, 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 and on and on it goes all the way through Charles Darwin's Origin of Species and how you have apes and then these transitional things and all this stuff and it seems to be that science tells us there's this great bang or um, something happens in the soup of whatever existed so much so that now things begin to come together but as science also tells us things are really complex and we don't fully understand how life even happens um and so it's amazing, your brain and all these things, it seems like 
on accident things came together this way. And I might say, well, Scripture has something to say about how things began. And Scripture's, what it's saying is, yeah, this accidental, what seems to be an accident, this great cause, God is that great cause. Let me tell you that it's not an accident that you think this way, that you are who you are, that, that beauty and things evoke and, and come through. And so I, I find it interesting that we might sit down with our evolutionary neighbors and we might say, yeah, this is how we conceive of how the world began, just like the Babylonians conceived of the world they began. And we might not, as Christians, say, you're wrong. We might say, yes, that's how it came to be. And let me tell you, it's not an accident. Let me tell you some, some theological truths about our world because God is that great cause. And so I don't have to critique or criticize my Babylonian neighbor or my evolutionary neighbor or whatever. Um, I can then tell them their story back to them with some theological truths. Now, this isn't 100% uh, flaw proof, and I haven't done this yet. So um, you may be listening and going, I don't know if he's got this right. And that's where Green comes back in and says, okay, but the fundamental um, question that a lot of fundamentalists and American evangelicals have is that we've used these words about the infallibility and inerrancy of Scripture. And we've said that the Bible is doesn't have errors, that it conveys God's truth perfectly. And we talk about if it's a divine book, if it's really from God and it has authority in our life, then it has to be perfect. It has to tell us all these things. And I think uh, I really like how Green says that those words, infallibility, inerrancy, they don't take us very far. It's far more important for the church to approach Scripture as the place to learn what God has said and is saying about humanity and the cosmos. And it is there in the community of the faithful that we have ears and eyes restored to see, uh, to, as, uh, to, as Scripture kind of says, to, to hear and see from God's perspective. Uh, what actually is. And so that's a that's a great quote, I think, from from Green, that it, it just doesn't take us very far. In fact, what we really need is to have our eyes and our ears restored um, so that we can hear and see from God's perspective what actually is. Um, and so that's where he kind of begins to form what uh, authority Scripture has in it. So he says this, the faith statement that this book is our book these scriptures are our scripture. And so um, I think as a, as a Bible student, I often shied away from doing anything other than historical criticism, if you will. That's a method of biblical interpretation. I was learning um, a lot about where the Bible came from, who the, the people were that lived in the you know first century of the New Testament world or in the Old Testament um, the Jews and the Jewish people and the neighbors that they were in. But there's so much more uh, to that. There's so many more possibilities and, and methods out there. And I don't have to throw away my belief in the biblical texts um, that they are inspired of God to study closely, to dissect them closely and, and say, yeah, uh, maybe my original view that the first five books of the Bible were written by Moses is erroneous, and I really need to take into consideration a different historical critical view or a, uh, a, you know, a source critical view. Um, and I also don't have to throw out my reason 
I don't have to leave reason at the door, even though I have now as a postmodern person as some skepticism towards whether or not my reason is really that objective. But I don't have to throw my reason out um, to come to the, the Bible. In fact, Green challenges me to go deeper in my studies um, because before I focus on retrieving that information or marveling at the facts that others have retrieved from these methods, we need to come not so much to retrieve facts or gain information, but be formed. And so I am not reading the Bible to discover its secret code, but to encounter the Lord God as the Spirit reveals him to me in this text, in this religious text. And so um, I, I thought that as I close kind of this conversation on deconstruction and some deconstructing ideas, I thought it would be good to go to what's been helpful for me in my religious experience, which is reclaiming a sense of contemplative prayer and um, getting a little bit into letting the mystical side of Christianity and the mystical um, and mysticism, if you will, uh, be a good critique of my kind of scientific method form of Christianity where I want to dissect and kind of understand and boil down the truths that are found in the Bible. And so uh, I thought Rowan Williams, um, and I've shared a lot of his stuff on my podcast um, from his book, Being Christian, has been really helpful when I talk about prayer. And, uh, and I like this, this quote, the heart of Christian prayer is getting over the idea that God is somewhere a very, very long way off. My favorite t uh, shows are Star Wars. The, my favorite movies were Star Wars growing up, and um, I loved Star Wars. And at the very beginning of every Star Wars film, there was this blue lettering that said, in a galaxy far, far away. And that's what it was to do fantasy. That's what it was to escape our, our world today. And the reality is, though, when I watch Star Wars, the characters are wrestling with love and conflict. They're wrestling with good and evil. They're wrestling with truth and what's true about the world. I remember Han Solo uh, is kind of portrayed as the skeptic who doesn't really believe that there's the force. And he's just kind of like, nah, that, I don't believe in any of that. I just believe in luck. You know, and he's kind of the modern person who just is kind of like, no, I don't believe in that stuff. And he's faced with these experiences and these people surrounding him who challenge that view that uh, of belief. And um, I think we need to get back to that Star Wars idea that, that Obi-Wan uh, says to Luke at the end of A New Hope, the Force will be with you always. And... Um, we need to get over this idea that this is a long way off, that this is something, uh, that God is something that we can't really tangibly experience. And I know that this is part of one of the fundamental questions that a lot of my friends who have given up on faith, or at least family members who have given up on faith, have posed, which is, uh, if God is God and God is good, and God is kind of portrayed as a father figure, and we are God's children. This is very parental language throughout the Old Testament and throughout the New Testament even. And especially in Christian experience, we talk about a good, good father, as many of the songs are, are uh, talking about today. Then God wouldn't make it so far off that God would make it easy 
that God wouldn't make it so difficult um, to experience, to hear God's voice, to encounter God. And I think this is a really good critique of faith and of Christianity. Um, I think it's a really good one. Of a very, it, It's another version of the problem of evil. If a good God existed, why does he make it so hard to hear God's voice, to communicate, to talk to him? As one of my students said, uh, prayer is like text messaging with God, and God never texts back. I think these are fair critiques. And so the mystical tradition has, you know, a lot of people who say they have experiences of Jesus. Um, they'll they'll see Jesus in a vision, or like the Apostle Paul is on the way to Damascus and and sees a light and has a, a visible experience of the risen Christ in his life. So. You know, I'm not saying that the mystical tradition doesn't offer that, but it also, in some of the writers that I know and read, um, offers a, a, another critique, a, a critique of kind of this idea that we can dissect our way into knowing God, is that prayer and communicating with God is not so much uh, about something we are doing. And so this is what Rowan Williams says, prayer more and more is not something we do, but what we are letting God do in us. As one of the guys that I uh, listen to about contemplative prayer, uh, Joe Stabile says he he says that the prayer is uh, contemplative prayer at least when you do a contemplative sit where you're not talking, where you're simply letting your mind have things come up and you dismiss them and you're emptying yourself, not to be empty as Buddhists do in their meditations, but in the Christian form letting God's Spirit work on the places of your heart and your mind and the inner parts of you. And Joe Stabile said, that's none of your business. The work that God is doing in your meditation in your sit is none of your business. And so as we come to the Bible, and I think it's interesting that I didn't actually prep a, a verse from the Bible or a quotation, is that I think when we come to Scripture as Christian Scripture, the one that I most often want to point people to is the, the one that Jesus says uh, to the scribes and Pharisees, you diligently search the scriptures thinking that in them you have life and you missed me, this is a paraphrase, um, the very things that the scriptures point to that, and you missed me, the one who is going to give you life. You missed me so that I, you know, instead of coming to me so that I might give you that life that you actually want. And so I think most of the time the big truth that people are actually seeking in religion and in faith that is often an illusion is the good life, is what does it mean to live and be happy and to be whole. And so we have these themes throughout Scripture, people wrestling with it. And in fact, you have different voices within Scripture, different camps pointing out what the good life is. The Torah um, points out kind of law-keeping, but even within the Torah, there's different voices there. You have um, these different people in the Old Testament, kind of prophets coming and speaking against uh, the visions of the good life that the kings and the people had pursued, or the visions of the good life that align, you know, becoming allies with the big economic powers or the rulers of this world could be. And you have Paul uh, speaking to the different churches in uh, in Turkey about uh, not getting caught up with the powers that be. Uh, you have this in Ephesians and in Philippians and Colossians, especially Colossians and Ephesians. I think we need to reclaim this idea that Scripture is something where we come to 
and let our vision of the good life be critiqued. And so it's not so much that we unearth the one truth about what the good life is in Scripture, but we come to Jesus who gives us that life, who gives us that good life. And I think Jesus would critique a lot of the ways that evangelical Christians, a lot of the ways that American Christians, a lot of ways that Christians in the past have come and pursued the good life in the name of God. So uh, my favorite movie, The Kingdom of Heaven, um, well, it's not my favorite, but one of my favorite movies is The Kingdom of Heaven. And it's uh, a great movie about the Crusades. And it's fascinating how the Kingdom of Heaven for a couple of the characters is where Jew and Muslim and Christian can live together in peace. And I wonder, that, that movie does a great critique of the whole mission of uh, the Crusades, which was to come in and conquer in the name of God. And the same was happening by the, the Islamic conquerors. They were trying to conquer in the name of Allah, God. And the Jews were there, kind of caught in the middle, but they believed that God uh, was still laid claim for their, their homeland. And so you, you kind of, I think, have this great vision in this film where these uh, priests are saying, God wills it. And you go, really? Like, I think scripture would even critique that. And you have characters doing that. And so that's what we find in, in the Christian Bible really is a chance for our vision of the good life. Our vision of what we believe God's will is gets critiqued. And it's a tool, an instrument of God's spirit that forms us. And that work that God is doing, that God is forming us, um, is none of our business. In fact, it's not something we can control or orchestrate. And so I think it's wrong for us to pursue having friends of ours do deconstruction. It's wrong for us to uh, pit different Christians against each other because they hold different views. I think that's wrong to force that. But all of us, I believe, if we truly let ourselves come to Scripture and, and practice prayer, all of us, if we're doing them uh, not to control God, but to let God speak to us, then ultimately we will go on our own versions of deconstruction because God is the one who's actually doing it. We're not deconstructing God. We're not deconstructing who God is. We're not, you know, killing God, if you will. God is not dead. In fact, God is the instrument and the, the, the orchestrator of our deconstruction with the hope that we would then um, be reconstructed more and more in the likeness of his son Jesus in the new humanity that Jesus brings. And so uh, I think that is my journey, really, of uh, deconstruction, is deconstructing this view that God is a very, very long way off, deconstructing a view uh, that uh, I can dissect Scripture and that by dissecting it with all of these uh, tools that I'll be somehow wiser and, and be able to understand the secret things of God better. Um, and so I've come to a little bit more of a view that uh, as I sit with these ideas, as I sit with Scripture, as I come to it, um, I am letting God take me apart, take my ideas apart, and less uh, and doing less work myself of of trying to dissect God. Um, so that's my crazy deconstruction episode. 
It's a little bit longer than I had wanted it to be. It's a little over 30 minutes, but I hope that uh, you can process some questions that you have. Maybe you have had some deconstructing moments this year and you've uh, started to think a little bit differently. I'd love to hear what those are. You can share them with me via email or you can um, write on my Facebook page. Uh, I'd love to get your questions. Maybe I kind of perked your uh, ear and you said, wow, I'd love to know a little bit more about uh, historical criticism, or I'd love to know a little bit more about what it would mean to read scripture this way. Maybe I perked your ear about some things about uh, mysticism and some mystical uh, parts of the Christian faith and that's, that aren't crazy, right? I mean, some of it can sound crazy sometimes, but, but that aren't crazy. I'd love to share some of those resources with you as well. And maybe you'd like to have a conversation and we could get together and do a Zoom call and we could record it and share it on the podcast. I'd love to do that too. So if you have some questions or thoughts or resources even on your uh, deconstructed Christian walk and how you're reconstructing your faith, because that's ultimately what we want to do is we want we want to allow God to, to construct us, to form us more, and that's the reconstruction work that we're doing. Uh, or as my friend Zach likes to use the disorientation, orientation view, and I think we need orientation. The other day I was listening to a podcast and their language was uh, unraveling and then re-raveling. So we, we all need to figure out what the after uh, aftermath is. And I think that's what 2021 hopefully will be, is that as 2020 has deconstructed our, our habits around hygiene and around health and around habits with friends, uh, how we spend our free time, uh, what entertainment looks like, we're going to have to reconstruct um, our, our life and the way that we engage in things. Um, and so that's, I, I hope, what this podcast was, a little bit of an exploration of Scripture and how I have actually reconstructed a higher authority, a higher view uh, of Scripture and its authority in my life um, than I had before, honestly. And, uh, and so I try and engage with Scripture as much as I can and with as many of the tools available to me as I can without fear. Um, because uh, someone saying that, you know, Moses didn't write the first five books of the Bible or Adam isn't a real person doesn't scare me anymore. It actually excites me because I get excited about, well, so what is the theological truth of Adam and Eve or Adam, the humanity uh, that is created in the first chapter of Genesis versus this holding with a death grip to this view of Adam as a literal human who we all are descendants of and our DNA is all connected to that, which honestly, um, you know, just seems to not not sit that well with me and never really did sit that well with me. So I've deconstructed, but I've actually reconstructed a higher view of the place of scripture that gives me more excitement and less fear. And I hope the same uh, could happen for you in your places of deconstruction that on the other side, as you emerge, you don't just end up in a sea of chaos where you're just kind of like, I don't know, um, but that you end up with a, an ability to be hopeful, to be uh, positive um, in your, your dealings with your family, with your friends, uh, with the world around you in an exciting way because of the work that God is doing in you. So uh, thanks for listening and hope that you have a great uh, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Thanks for tuning in to Value Add. For more great conversations and insights, visit valueaddconversations.com.